Hello there. How y'all doing? Um, my name's Carl Harrington, and I currently live in Atlanta. Um, and we're part of a family of churches called Confluence. And uh, if you are not aware of what that means, it'd be good for you to talk to someone here in the church or talk to Ben. But uh, this morning, we have uh, Ian Ashby. Ian and I have known each other. I think we met, I know we met in Brighton. Um, England. He's from England. He's lost some of his accent, and uh, but he's from England and uh, felt a few years before that he was supposed to move to the states. And so John Lamferman, who at that time led New Frontiers USA, and, and his wife Linda in Virginia, and I met with uh, Ian and Emma, and uh, they moved over here in 2002, and uh, they're leading a church in Portsmouth. He leads the region there, which I think is nine churches um, in, in that area, and um, uh, we're very good friends. We actually have two grandchildren together uh, from his daughter and my son, uh, and uh, they, uh, his daughter moved to, she actually moved to, Ken, uh, to Kennesaw to get to go to school for free because of the Hope Scholarship, and she, I don't think she ever ended up going to school, but she did marry Jono, <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh, so we've been, fr we're, we're not friends because our kids got married, we're just friends, and that's one thing I love about this family um, is is actually, we there's friendship. Uh, Terry's going to be coming and speaking at Celebration this year, and uh, Terry's a friend. I mean, he, he started the movement but he's a friend, and uh, so let's welcome Ian Ashby. Well, it's great to be with you all this morning. <laughs> Greetings from our church in New Hampshire, our New Frontiers Church, and uh, I'm married to Emma, as Carl said. She's a, an amazing artist and uh, her work's in high demand right now, and she's doing really well. We have uh, four grown children, and we have uh, six grandchildren, uh, two of which have a good grandfather and a bad grandfather. <laughs> um, I was born in London, and it was uh, the place I, I grew up was actually, there was a kind of music scene there. Uh, David Bowie went to my elementary school. I got pictures of him when he was uh, a little boy there, and uh, though he's older than I am. Uh, but another, another one, if any of you have heard of Billy Idol, he was at my high school when I was there. Uh, he was just leaving as I was starting uh, because uh, it was a bit of a, the beginnings of the punk scene right there where I lived. I was in a band myself uh, called Hepatitis Risk, and uh, that will tell you something about me, and uh, Jesus saved me, and uh, when I was 20 years old at college, and uh, I got saved at the church that actually was relating with other churches and with Terry Virgo at that time, it was just before it became known as New Frontiers. Um, and so I've been part of this family of churches for almost 40 years now. And it's all I've really known, but I'm very grateful uh, for that. And um, 
I was a graphic designer, and, but really felt a passion to study theology. I went to a Baptist seminary in London um, doing classes there, never imagining I was going to be a pastor. And, uh, and then one day I was asked to, I was being a Christian just eight years, asked to go and lead a, a church plant just south of London. And uh, they really had run out of options when they asked me. Uh, but that's where I got started. And then 20 years ago, this year, my family and I moved to the United States. And uh, God had begun to uh, stir in me something prophetic um, about coming to the States. I'd been a student uh, of the Great Awakenings. And um, I really felt that God was wanting to fan the the, the kind of embers, if you want, of past revivals in this nation. That's why I ended up in New England. And because I really do believe that God is wanting to pour out his spirit in this nation once again. Yeah. And I really believe I'm going to live to see that. And I pray that you will live to see it as well. Um, Psalm 85 has been my prayer. I'm just going to read to you. Psalm 85 in verse 6, says this, Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And more than ever, um, we need God to revive his church in these days, that his glory will dwell in this land. Amen? I want to share a story with you today, do something a little different, uh, since you're kind of mid-sermon series, but I want to impart faith, if you want. I want to stir faith in us, to believe God, uh, that we would see uh, his glory dwell in this land. This was a time when God revived his church in this nation. I'm going to tell you about when his glory did dwell in this land. It was noon, September 23rd, 1859. A tall, middle-aged man climbed the uh, creaking steps up to the third floor room of the old North Dutch church in, uh, just on the corner of Fulton Street, in what is now Lower Manhattan. And he sat down on his chair in this empty room and he pulled out his pocket watch and he waited. Outside on the door, he'd hung this sign. And the sign said, Prayer meeting from 12 to 1 o'clock. Stop 5, 10 or 20 minutes or the whole hour as your time permits. His name was Jeremiah Lanfear, and he'd been hired by the trustees of the church a few months earlier to go and knock on people's doors and to try and recruit new members. Uh, they must have been pretty desperate because he had no experience in evangelism at all. He'd been a businessman all of his life, but church membership had been in steady decline, and some thought they would have to close their doors as a number of churches had done. 
And so this seemed to be a last-ditch attempt uh, by the trustees to try and revive their church. Jeremiah did his best. Uh, day after day, he'd go visiting homes and shops and offices, inviting people to their services, and, you know, a few did come, but it really was hard going. And Jeremiah felt pretty discouraged. He'd go home at night, go to his room, and just cry out to God to change the spiritual climate in the nation. And then one day he felt God gave him an idea. The church was situated right in the heart of the financial district uh, in New York, and so perhaps businessmen might like to come and pray with him in their lunch break. And so he got some handbills printed up and started handing them out to everyone, inviting them to come and pray with him at noon. But as he sat in that empty room that day, it must have seemed like no one had the time or the inclination. It was the same actually in, in a lot of churches all across the nation um, where church membership was decreasing and where religion was largely being uh, ridiculed at the time. And so as the minutes ticked by in that room, you wonder what Jeremiah must have been praying. I mean, having done everything he could do, what he must have been praying then. Maybe he was praying Psalm 85. Oh Lord, won't you revive us again, that your glory would dwell in our land. And you know, that prayer, it represents a pattern that we see throughout the history of God's people. Uh, a pattern of kind of peaks and troughs. We see that uh, times in Israel's history, you know, when there was spiritual decline, and then there would be those who would cry out to God, like this psalmist, crying out to God to revive them, and God in his mercy would come again and would bless the nation. And there'll be a period of spiritual renewal. So it was kind of peaks and troughs, with the lowest point perhaps when the people were taken into exile in Babylon. And it was at the end of that period when they were returning to their devastated land that we hear the cry from uh, Isaiah 64, crying out to God to come again. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. May the nations tremble before your presence, Lord. And of course, we see that prayer being answered in part on the day of Pentecost when Jesus ascended uh, to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit who came down upon the church and people from different nations who were gathered experienced God's presence and began to cry out, what must we do to be saved? Now, you might expect that once the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the day of Pentecost, that from then on, the graph of the spiritual progress of the church would have looked something like this. But it really doesn't. It looks like this. As you look back uh, through church history, if you study church history, you see a continuing pattern of peaks and troughs. Right? There have been periods, sometimes long periods, of spiritual darkness, decline, and then God would come and breathe new life uh, in his church, resulting in spiritual renewal and growth again. 
And then after a time, with a new generation, things might to tend to decline. And that's what happened in America. In the mid-19th century, this nation had already experienced significant periods of revival. Um, when the Spirit of God was moving powerfully, and when there were many conversions. But by the 1850s, the spiritual decline was quite pronounced. People were experiencing a new prosperity. It was the age of industry and pioneers. The West had opened up. Uh, the railroad was being built. Uh, gold was being discovered. Right? There was a new prosperity, increased wealth, in the nation. And it seems that as people's fortunes increased, faith decreased. Any sense of godliness was being replaced with worldliness or uh, vanity and vices, as one clergyman put it. And so Old North Dutch Church, like so many churches across the country, was facing this slow demise. And yet, what we see again and again is that throughout church history, it's in those spiritually dark times that God often puts it into the hearts of a few faithful people to pray. Won't you revive us again, O oh God, that your glory would dwell in our land? And I'm sure that must have been Jeremiah's prayer. As he sat all alone in that upper room, in that old church building, and ten minutes passed by, and then another 10 minutes. And then, at 12.30, he heard footsteps outside. A man came in to join him. And then, another man. And then, there were six of them. And so they prayed until 1 o'clock, and they agreed that they would meet again the following Wednesday. Two days later, the Bank of Pennsylvania failed, and it caused a panic. So the next Wednesday at noon, 20 people turned up to pray. The following week, it was 40. Jeremiah decided he'd make this a daily event. Well, that same week, the New York stock market crashed. It was the worst financial crisis in the history of this nation up until that point. Banks closed. People lost their jobs. Businesses went bankrupt. The prosperity bubble had burst, and people became very fearful. Soon the daily prayer meetings were overflowing. Other prayer meetings sprung up all over the city of New York. The churches had to open their doors because of the crowds who were wanting to come and pray. Within six months, 10,000 people were gathering to pray daily in New York City. And it began to overflow to other cities across the nation. One young man from Philadelphia had been in Jeremiah's first prayer meeting. And he went back to Philly and he started his own prayer meeting. Started with 12 people. And for the first few weeks, uh, it just remained like that. But it's like the Spirit of God was hovering over the city. And then suddenly, one day, breakthrough came. The prayer meeting went from 12 to 60 people, and then 300 people, and then 2,500 people within one month. Imagine that. 
Again, meetings sprung up all over the city. Now, the meetings were pretty orderly. Uh, signs were actually put up uh, to explain the kind of rules that meetings should begin and end punctually. Anyone could pray out, uh, could lead out in singing a hymn or give a testimony or exhortation, but they were to keep it short to give other people opportunity. I mean, very pragmatic, isn't it, when you think about this is a time when revival was breaking out. Uh, but that was the format for all these prayer meetings uh, that were repeated in towns and cities all over the nation. Uh, church historian J. Edwin Orr, he wrote this. He said, The influence of the awakening was felt everywhere in the nation. It first captured great cities, and it also spread through every town and village. It swamped schools and colleges and affected all classes without respect. All over the nation, the revival became headline news. I'm just going to read you some headline newspapers all right, across the nation. This was the headline in those newspapers. New Haven, Connecticut, city's biggest church packed twice daily for prayer. Bethel, Connecticut, business shuts down an hour each day. Everybody prays. Albany, New York, state legislators get down on knees, was the headline. Somewhere in New York, ice on the Mohawk broken for baptisms. Newark, New York, fireman's meeting attracts 2,000. Washington, D.C., five prayer meetings go round the clock. New Haven, Connecticut, revival sweeps Yale. The colleges were particularly affected. In fact, the president of Amherst College declared that nearly all the students had been converted. That was the effect of all of these people praying. It's like the Holy Spirit had revived a dying church and it caused a spiritual awakening across the nation. One newspaper wrote, the Spirit of God seems to be brooding over our city and to have produced an unusual degree of tenderness and solemnity. Another newspaper reported, there are several New England towns in which not a single adult person can be found unconverted. For a short period of time, it was estimated over 50,000 conversions were occurring weekly. Such was the spiritual atmosphere. There were several reports of ships as they drew into the American ports coming into this zone of the Spirit's influence. Um, people were coming under conviction and getting converted on board the ships as they were coming into the harbors. One famous story is of the battleship, the USS North Carolina. Well, hey, <laughs> it was anchored in the New York Harbor. They had about 1,000 men on board, among which were just four Christians, an Episcopalian, Presbyterian, two Baptists. And they asked for permission to hold a prayer meeting on board ship. I mean, that's revival right there. They were told, well, you can meet in the lower decks in the bowels of the ship. And so one evening they gathered to pray, these four Christians. And apparently the Holy Spirit filled their hearts with such joy 
they just broke out in singing out loud and must have made quite a commotion because their ungodly shipmates heard this and came running down to mock these men. But as they drew near, they came under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and fell to their knees and began repenting, crying out to God for mercy. And night after night, sailors gathered to pray. Hundreds were converted. They had to send for ministers on shore to come on board the ship to assist with the work. And because it was a receiving ship from which uh, men were drafted to other ships, the revival spread right through the Navy. That revival lasted for about two years. And some think it would have gone on for much longer if it wasn't for the political unrest that led to the Civil War. Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is that according to some historians, 150,000 Confederate soldiers were converted, and by the end of the war, a third of the officers and soldiers were professing Christians. And of course, the effects of the revival continued for many years afterwards. Um, According to J. Edwin Orr, all in all, one million people were converted and added to the churches during that period out of a population of just 30 million people. That's incredible. Why am I telling you all this? Well, a number of years ago, Christian History magazine published an article on spiritual awakenings in America. And they got Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones to write a preface to these articles. Lloyd-Jones, by the way, was very influential on our family of churches in the early days when he was ministering in Westminster Chapel in London. But he wrote this. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in the magazine. He said, I'm profoundly convinced that the greatest need in the world today is revival in the church of God. Yet, alas, the whole idea of revival seems to have become strange to so many good Christian people. There are some who even seem to resent the very idea and actually speak and write against it. Such an attitude is due to both a serious misunderstanding of the Scriptures and to a woeful ignorance of the history of the church. Anything, therefore, that can instruct God's people in this matter is very welcome. And that's why I love sharing these stories. You see, what else is going to change the spiritual climate in this nation? This present government's not going to do it. Nor is a change of government going to do it. Governments can legislate, but they can't change people's hearts. What will it take to awaken the people in our cities to their need of a saviour. Evangelism alone won't do it. Evangelism is absolutely necessary. It's important. Uh, preaching the gospel, being a witness to the people around us, that's what the church is called to do, in season and out. But what I'm saying is evangelism won't produce a revival. I think historically there's been some confusion about that because the word revival has become associated with an evangelistic campaign, like tent meetings, you know, we're going to have us a revival. 
thing is, you can't organise a revival. Because a true revival is the direct intervention of God by the Holy Spirit. Or as Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote in the uh, mid-18th century, he said this, he said, there are some special seasons where he comes forth with omnipotent power. And these times are times of remarkable pouring out of his spirit to advance his kingdom. And such a day is a day of his power. They are special seasons of divine activity. Evangelism won't produce a revival, but a revival will always produce evangelism, often with greater power and effectiveness. You know, what happened at Azusa Street in Los Angeles in 1906 was a season of remarkable divine activity where God poured out his spirit in revival power and it resulted in people taking the gospel all over the world. The beginning of Pentecostalism. When we pray for revival, we are in a sense praying for God to do again what he did on the day of Pentecost. You know, when the spirit came upon this whole community of people in a remarkable way and 3,000 people were saved. And the gospel went out from there to the ends of the earth. That's the, that's the pattern of revival. Now, I realize that in many churches today, it's taught that since the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, he can't be poured out again. That we've been given everything that we need. We just need to get on with it, you know? But that doesn't explain what happened in 1857. It doesn't explain what happened in 1906 or the other times when God seems to have moved in remarkable and unexpected ways. As Lloyd-Jones says, it shows a misunderstanding of Scripture and an ignorance of church history. But sadly, that's why there's so much indifference to revival today. You, know, you just don't hear people talking about revival as much or praying, won't you revive us again, O oh Lord? Right? It tends to be about what we need to do. You know, five best practices to grow your church. Again, let me just quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Just to say, Lloyd-Jones was very clear that we shouldn't just be looking for the exceptional and the unusual, right? We need to do everything we can, he would say, in the regular workings of the church and celebrate every conversion and every baptism, right? At the same time, he would say, the need out there is too great for us just to rely on the present state of affairs. Listen to Lloyd-Jones. He says, we can produce a number of converts. Thank God for that. And that goes on regularly in evangelical churches every Sunday. If only. But the need today is much too great for that. The need today is for an authentication of God, of the supernatural, of the spiritual, of the eternal. What is needed is some mighty demonstration of the power of God, some enactment of the Almighty that will compel people to pay attention and to look and to listen. And the history of all the revivals of the past indicates so clearly that that is invariably the effect of revival without any exception at all. And that is why I'm calling attention to revival. 
That is why I'm urging you to pray for this. When God acts, he can do more in a minute than man with his organizing can do in 50 years. That's why I'm calling our attention to it today. So if I can conclude, how can we expect this to happen? We hear of revivals in other parts of the world, in places in Asia, South America, and Africa. What about here in the West? Is our society now too materialistic, humanistic, consumeristic, individualistic? Is God done with this nation? I think it's worth reflecting on the history of revival in this nation and noting that whenever God has poured out his spirit, it's always been unexpected. When the nation seemed to be in spiritual decline, when morally speaking, society was adrift, and when people seemed hardened to the things of God, and yet a sovereign God who orchestrates all of history came in power in ways that no one could have predicted or imagined. If history teaches us anything, it is that what God has done before, he can do again. But what we also see in the history of revivals is that before anything happened, God put it into the hearts of his people, even just a few people, to pray. Revival always starts with God's people. And a few months after God had prompted Jeremiah Lanfear to pray, and the Spirit of God started moving across America, the news re- reached England. On July 17, 1859, not far from where I was born in London, C.H. Spurgeon preached a sermon on God's mighty acts, in which he asked the people this question. He said, have you ever heard of the commencement of the great American revival? An unknown and obscure man laid it up in his heart to pray that God would bless his country. Oh, if I could only believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray for a revival, that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as he has done in former generations. You know what? people must have caught his heart to pray. And I'm sure many were praying at that time because five months later, in December 1859, Spurgeon preached another sermon in which he said, the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord have at last dawned on our land. The revival that had swept across America now swept across Great Britain. In fact, it had already started in Northern Ireland, where four young Irishmen had started a weekly prayer meeting the same week that Jeremiah Lanfear had started his in New York. And when revival broke out, it spread like a wildfire across England and Scotland, Wales. And just like in America, it was estimated that a million people were converted. And that great awakening led to massive social reform and a missionary thrust that took the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
I really do believe that God is at work in this nation in our day. In the midst of all the turmoil that we have been experiencing, I really do believe God is preparing us for something mighty. Can you agree with me for that? Shall we pray for that right now? Come on, let's do it then. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's get the band back up. But let's lift our voices right now and just begin to cry out to God. Just begin to cry out to God right where you are. Let's just lift our hearts and our voices to the Lord and cry out to God with one voice. Oh, Lord, 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 won't you revive us again, oh, Lord? Oh, God, look. Your glory may dwell in this land again, Lord, that we might see revival in our own day, O oh God. O oh Lord, will you come in power? Wouldn't you render heavens and come down, Lord, and do what only you can do by your Spirit, O oh God? Come revive your church in these days of polarization, Lord, and so many arguments and factions and fragmentation, Lord. Only you by your Spirit can bring unity in your church and bring about, Lord, such a uh, an awakening in this nation, Lord, that nothing can, else could be achieved, Lord, humanly speaking, that only you could do. Won't you do it, Lord? Won't you come, Lord, by your Spirit, Lord? Revive your church, Lord. Lord, come revive our hearts. I pray for each one here, Lord, in Living Hope Church today. I pray, O oh God, there would be such a thirst in each of our hearts, Lord, Lord, that this will not leave us. We're not just going to go out of here and say, well, that was a good message or criticize what was being brought. Lord, I pray that you will do something by your spirit that, Lord, would give us such a thirst that only you can satisfy, oh God. There would be an unrest in us, Lord. Lord, to see you move in power. Lord, to see this nation change, Lord. To see your glory dwell in this land. May we go home from here and pray for it, Lord. Lay hold of you for it. Seek you for it. Knock on your door, Lord. Oh God, until we see revival, as they've seen in days past, won't you do it again, Lord, in our day? Do it, Lord. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Just come now, Holy Spirit, I pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, put this in our hearts here today. May our hearts break, Lord, for the things that break yours. Lord Jesus, you are the only hope for this nation and for this world. want to see the multitudes worshipping you. Colleges being swept by your spirit. Schools, towns, villages, your spirit coming. People being drawn to you irresistibly. Come, manifest your presence, Lord. 
see those days again where people are just falling to their knees, coming under the convicting power of your spirit. We can't produce that. Only you can do that by your spirit. Do it again, Lord, we pray. Do it again, Lord. Legislators falling down on their knees, praying, praying, seeking you, Lord. Do it again, Lord, we pray. You've done it before, Lord. Will you do it again? Do it again in this nation, we pray, oh God. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Hear our prayers. We agree together, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Do it, Lord, we pray. Thank you, Lord. Before we close with worship, I just um, I just want to affirm that. I think it's from God, what he just said. And I've been all weekend just repenting. I keep getting this picture from God just yesterday and this morning of me just coughing out dust that I've been breathing. And I think, God, what is that? And he just spoke to my heart and said, that's the cynicism of the world that you breathe every day. And it makes you not trust me for things and not ask me for things. It compromises your faith. And when I, when E.S. Eden was talking, I realized that's the same toxic air that blinded the Pharisees to the day of their visitation in Jesus Christ himself. Because they wanted him to come a certain way and in a certain package, and they could not believe when he showed up that it was him. Because they had been sucking the cynical dust of the world for so long, they couldn't recognize him when he showed up. And so it's like all weekend I've been coughing. (laughs) I know you're not allowed to do that anymore. It's like the unforgivable sin as a cough in public. But you get the picture. It's like, and and we need to come in out of that toxic air into this place of faith with God and say, God, we need you desperately and we believe you. And so I would like to take a minute and just, you know, if, if, you're, if you feel convicted by the same thing, I, I'm going to repent and then maybe you could repent with me if that's where you're at. And then let's sing in faith. Amen. So God, would you forgive us for just breathing in this cynical air in the world around us. The collective sarcastic sigh of the world that rolls its eyes and says whatever. Nothing's ever going to change. It is what it is. God, we reject that in the name of Jesus. And God, we breathe out that cynicism and we breathe in your spirit right now. God, we recognize that the only thing that's going to do anything is you. The only fix is you. The only solution is you. That's it. We've tried everything else. This nation is like the writer of Ecclesiastes who's tried every solution and none of it worked. God, the chasm is too wide. The distance is too far. 
So God, we just trust you. We choose faith in you. And God, let that faith drive us to our knees in prayer. Would you revive us again, oh God? Start with us right now, right here. In the name of Jesus, amen.